Well, yeah, she's going to root around. She's just going to root around down there. That was one of the titles we considered for the for the cooking channel show that I no. had. No, root around. Rooting around with Jason. No, you did not. Yeah, that was on the list. I'll Stop never forget it. it. Yeah. Are you serious? Yeah, food fetch was still the one that I thought was going to make it, though. Food fetch? Food fetch. No. Yeah, and there was even a theme song written. Nope. I even wrote a theme song for it. I would like you to sing it. Food fetch, 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 food fetch. We're fetching food. Are you serious? Sometimes eating good can feel like a stretch. No. Now it's time for you to learn how to fetch. Are you making this up? Scavenger hunting, you are. I can tell. Oh, I'm not. Scavenger hunting, saving your moolah with funky fresh recipes to make a yadula. How come you never told me about this? Food fetch, food fetch. There's a whole fucking theme I'll play for you. It's amazing. I don't know. Fetching food. I don't know about this at all. Yeah, it's yeah. You actually have this recorded somewhere. Yeah. No, you don't. Yes, I do. And it never saw the light of day. Why wouldn't you have told me about I this? I thought I did. All right, well, you'll have to listen to the Food Fetch theme song then. Is this the distance that you're going to be from the Correct. Mic? That is correct. You're positive. Yeah. Do you often like to change things up? No, this is comfortable. It's said that your real life begins where your comfort zone ends. Well, it's about to get real as we have radically authentic conversations to help you thrive in your personal and professional life while navigating the twists and turns of being human. Buckle up, because This Might Get Uncomfortable starts right now with Jason Robel and Whitney Lordson. Hello and welcome back. Hopefully, maybe, maybe this is your first episode. I don't know. I'm saying welcome back because this isn't our first episode. But if this is the very first episode you're listening to, welcome. I'm Whitney. I'm Jason. And this is This Might Get Uncomfortable. And today we are building upon an episode that we recorded to introduce you to this podcast. And if you have not listened to that yet, we recommend that you do just to learn a little bit more about the purpose of this podcast. So that will be linked in the show notes at wellevator.com. That's W-E-L-L. E-V-A-T-R dot com. And today what we're going to do is talk about Jason. This episode is devoted entirely to him and we're going to be doing it interview style. So similar to what you'll hear in upcoming episodes with us when we have special guests on. And uh, if you haven't listened to the intro episode yet, you may not know that a lot of these episodes will just be a conversation between me and Jason. And some of them will include special guests that will also be conversational. So I actually shouldn't even use the word interview. I'm using that mainly to clarify the format. But really, I prefer the word conversation for this podcast because we aim to make this something that you feel a part of. You're fly on the wall and you're just learning about whatever subject matter or subject matters we're discussing. And hopefully that will help you feel not only connected to us, but get the wheels turning in your mind and think about how you feel about these subject matters. So today you get to think about how you feel about Jason. Whoa, a lot of feels. That's a loaded subject. You get to think about how you feel about Jason. Mm -hmm. I get to think about how I feel about myself, I suppose, too. Whoa. Yep, this should be fun. All right. Well, I want to start at the beginning of Jason Robel. 
And to do that, the first thing I would love you to share is about your mother. Before you were born, Mm -hmm. who was Susan Robel? So far as I know from what she's told me and, of course, anecdotes from other family members and family friends, my mom was, as a child, you know, very active and was always an animal lover. They always had animals in the house growing up on my mom's side of the family. And my mom, there's a lot of pictures of her with, with her animals. And the one that stands out in particular, I can remember, is her, is her bunny rabbit named Fluffy. This like Arctic white giant rabbit that she had as a child named Fluffy. So my mom was always, you know, rescuing animals, protecting animals, adopting animals. She was definitely, as far as I know, in her family, she had that instinct. And so if I obviously look at my current penchant for rescuing. Penchant. Yes. I love how you, your vocabulary is really impressive, oh, by the way. This is a little tidbit. <laughs> I'll interject at times to point these things out. I appreciate it. You, honestly, your vocabulary never ceases to amaze me. Thank you. Go on. Thank you. Um, I can see that that was the source of probably my love and affinity for loving and protecting and rescuing animals. Certainly my mom had that as a child. And how did your mom meet your dad? Well, in between childhood and meeting my dad, there was high school. And so my mom got straight A's. My mom basically had the perfect high school career. She got straight A's. She was the class valedictorian. She was homecoming queen. And I she, didn't know that. And she dated the captain of the football team. Wow. If you, yeah, if you, if you had... Go mom. No, it's ridiculous, honestly. If you had a storybook high school career, academically and socially, my mom had that. It was insane. And where was this? This was in Detroit, Michigan. So she went to a Catholic school in downtown Detroit where she grew up, just west of Tiger Stadium in downtown Detroit. So very, very close to the center of downtown, but still in a neighborhood. And when my mom graduated high school, she was debating what she wanted to do and decided to go to Wayne State University, which also interestingly is where Dr. Wayne Dyer graduated from. And who is that for anyone unfamiliar with him? Dr. Wayne Dyer, who passed a few years ago, was, is, if we want to really take it to the the highest level, one of the most prolific luminaries and teachers on higher consciousness and spirituality, love, manifestation, abundance, wrote countless numbers of New York Times bestsellers and, you know, TV specials, PBS specials, along with Louise Hay. It seems that those two were really at the pinnacle of the Hay House media empire for many, many years before their passing. So. Wayne Dyer just has inspired so many people with his message of, of love and consciousness and abundance and faith. And yeah, he's a Detroit boy, graduated from Wayne State. So it's my mom's alma mater as well. And my mom was on campus one day hanging out at Wayne State, which again, the heart of downtown. And we're talking the late 60s now. So the massive cultural revolution that was taking place in this country in the late 60s, musically, artistically, politically, she was in all that. And my dad comes on campus. My dad wasn't going to college, FYI. He was just an older dude hanging out on campus to pick up chicks. <laughs> How much older? My dad was, I think he was six or seven years older than my mom. So when my mom was 18, he was maybe in his mid-20s, and he's on campus just hanging out. And my mom said the reason she was attracted to him, because initially when she met him, he was very kind, and he rode a motorcycle, and he was a great dancer. Those are the three things she said. He was kind, he rode a motorcycle, he was a great dancer. Like the dancer thing, she said the first time they went out dancing. She was like, oh, whoa, okay. Like this, this guy, this guy's <laughs> Maybe got moves. Maybe that's where you get it from. That's probably the, the Puerto Rican hips. <laughs> Is the your Puerto- mom a good dancer? I don't know that I've seen my mom. She has a funny food dance. The only dance that I see my mom do consistently is she's got a, a signature dance when she takes a bite of food that she loves. What is She kind of leans her head back and she goes like, 
<laughs> like she shakes, she shimmies her shoulders and does like this thing, like this ooh, mm, 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 like shimmy shimmy cocoa pop, like with her, with her shoulders when she tries really good food. It's really cute. It's my mom's signature move. So my mom. So your mom is Polish. My mom. Hundred percent. Well, no, because we I did twenty three and me thanks to you. Whitney gifted me this last holiday, two holidays ago. With 23andMe, so I did my genetic testing. We'll put that in the show notes at wellevator.com because it's really fascinating to do genetic testing. So the the impression that I was under was it was a pretty cut and dry ethnic lineage, but I found some surprises there. So on my mom's side, predominantly Polish, but also mixed in there is some Italian and Ashkenazi Jew. I did not know about the Italian or the Ashkenazi Jew. People had their suspicions about they the d- I mean, side. my Jewish friends were like, of course. Like, it was not a shock to anyone. <laughs> and there's a story behind the Jewish lineage that ties back to actually the composer and pianist Frederick Chopin. So, But my dad's side was pretty cut and dry. It was Puerto Rican, Spanish, and a little bit of sub-Saharan African. So there's a few surprises thrown into the lineage. That makes sense. He's a great dancer. He's got a lot of that soul. Oh, for sure. Yeah, yeah. I mean, my dad had many, many gifts and talents, and so did my mom. I mean, very different gifts and talents. Well, your mom has all the the cooking talent. Oh, yeah. So a lot of this makes sense for who you became, you know, the motorcycle. Your dad (laughs) (laughs) used to ride. Now you have a motorcycle. You've had several before. I have many, yeah. You love to cook. You also dance a lot. Yeah. You like to sing. Love cars. You like younger women. (laughs) Not as a rule, but yeah, that seems to be what happens. That just seems to be how it plays out in life. Mm-hmm. Okay, so how did you come about in your parents' lives? How did I come about? Yeah. Well, I did mean, they we decide know. to have you? Oh, I was going to say, they, I think we know how. Did um, they get married? My What's mom and, the story behind you and mm-hmm. your parents? Yeah, my mom and dad were never married. So consequently, <laughs> I always make this ridiculous joke that if anyone was ever like, you're a bastard, I'd be like, you are technically correct. Try again. So I identified with Jon Snow, although we know, anyway, that wasn't true, but uh, the bastard, the battle of the bastards. So my mom and dad were never married, and they, uh, they got together, yeah, I think late 60s, early 70s. I was born in 77, so I was conceived in 76, in the winter of 76, and that makes sense because in the winter in Detroit, not a whole lot to do other than dig yourself out of snow and make babies. So mom and dad, yeah, were together for a good probably uh, close to a decade or so, maybe. I don't know the exact dates, but but close to a decade-ish before I came on the scene. And did they plan to have, since they didn't get married, was it, let's have a son, let's have a kid? I don't believe I was planned. Okay. And what happened after you entered their lives? It's interesting because there were a lot of really fascinating stories prior to my birth, so many fascinating stories that I've often wanted to write a, a movie script talking about these adventures and just the crazy stuff that specifically my dad initiated in life. A lot of really crazy adventures and just too many to name, just crazy movie stuff, cinematic crazy movie stuff. So when I came on the scene, my dad was still getting these old classic cars. You know, when we were growing up, we had a lot of Porsches and Jaguars and Excaliburs and MGs and like really cool stuff in Detroit because one of the things he was doing as a side hustle or maybe his primary hustle was finding these old cars, rehabbing them, refinishing them, and then selling them for a profit. So when I was young, he was still doing that. Before that, he was working as a stonemason, but he also was getting into acting. So as I got a little bit older, you know, three, four years old, there was this debate of whether or not I was going to be raised in Los Angeles where he was getting acting gigs or if I was going to be raised in Detroit. And as my dad got into acting and was being booked for movies and TV and stuff, my mom had to make a decision. And ultimately, 
Her decision was that the LA lifestyle and the entertainment world was a little too crazy and his life was getting really crazy, like really insane. And so What does that mean? My father as he first of all, he had this ability to kick down doors and be in rooms that you would never have expected him to be in. The reason he got into the acting business, he had a Jaguar XKE, gorgeous Jaguar XKE that he was in California trying to sell and the famous TV producer, Mickey Spillane, who did the Mike Hammer series and a bunch of other TV series in the 70s and 80s, wanted to buy this Jag from my dad. And my dad said to Mickey Spillane, he said, I'll cut you a great deal on this Jaguar, but you're going to write me into an episode of Mike Hammer. Like the balls on this guy. Who does that? He did. And next thing you know, Mickey Spillane's like, sure, writes my dad in who had zero, not a day of acting experience in his life, was on with Stacy Keach in the 70s, or maybe it was the early 80s, on Mike Hammer TV series. My dad gets his SAG card. Next thing you know, I'm at home watching him on the A-Team, Simon and Simon. He was on Casablanca, the series in the 80s. Like, my dad was working. He's on Fantasy Island. Oh, I didn't know any of this. So (laughs) my father's in not major roles, but enough that he was what they call a day player, where he'd get paid for a day's work, was a union actor, and doing his thing. So the craziness was basically, you know, him... Living the Hollywood lifestyle, being an actor, hanging out with paparazzi, having a few celebrity friends, drinking, drugs, partying, all the things. And my mom, being with me, a young child, was like, I don't know if that's the lifestyle and situation I want to have my son involved in. So because she saw that my dad was becoming increasingly erratic and unstable and focusing on this new career and this new lifestyle, she thought it might be more stable and sane to raise me in Detroit, where we had our family there. My mom and dad's family were both in Detroit. So that was a decision, yeah. It was like LA or Detroit. So I was almost raised in Los Angeles. That was a consideration. Wow. Do you think part of the reason that you eventually moved to Los Angeles was to do with your dad? Absolutely. Because he was out here when you moved out here. In what year did you move to LA? I originally moved out here in 2005. And that's actually, yeah, the last time I saw my father was 2005. And I know that one of the big reasons that I moved out here was because when I was little, he would send me photos of the ocean and the hills and movie sets he was on. And for a kid growing up in the city of Detroit, that felt like fantasy land. It's like, what is this magical place called California? What is this? This is, what do you mean ocean and surfboards and Mustang convertibles and Hollywood? And it seemed like the most magical place, like the polar opposite of the energy and environment of Detroit. Which was what for you growing up? It's interesting because as a child, I don't think that I was necessarily aware of the larger context of the culture and environment of Detroit as a little kid. As I got older, though, I started to realize that as my desire to be a student filmmaker, actor, musician, all the artistic pursuits, Detroit just felt like a very mechanistic environment of what do you do when you graduate? You go become an engineer. You work for Ford Motor Company or Chrysler or GM. And you just, there's, there's like, a formulaic mentality there. And I don't like formulas and I don't like doing what everyone else is doing. I never have. I've always felt very rebellious in that sense. And California to me and Los Angeles specifically, seeing it through my father's lifestyle growing up was like, man, he's being an actor and he's got all these great cars. He's hanging out with celebrities. He's you know making a, like, what is this world? This is a crazy life. So as an adult coming out to LA in my late 20s, it was definitely this idea of, well, this is the land of opportunity, right? So what can I do with California here in this environment that I couldn't necessarily do in Detroit? So it was opportunity. And it was also, to be honest, from an ego perspective, and almost this idea of redemption. My father eventually derailed his own career, okay? He started showing up late for movie sets. He got addicted to drugs and drinking, and he really sabotaged 
his life and his career in many ways because of his own mental struggles and demons. And I almost had a mission that I was going to come out here and do what he wasn't able to do, which is one of the main drivers of why I wanted to get my own TV series and act and do music. It was like, I want to almost not finish what he started per se. That's not really what it is. To be radically honest about it, it was like, you know, part of my pain, my one of my deepest wounds is not enoughness because I never felt like I was enough because my father ended up leaving and leaving the family situation. And it was almost like, if I'm successful and I have my own TV series and I'm famous and I make a lot of money, then I'll be enough. Do you approve of me now, dad? I did better than you. Did you want did your approval than you. more than your, from your dad or from your mom or equally? Did think, you feel like you got approval from your mom? Yeah, it's interesting because no matter what I've chosen to do, literally, my mom has always been very supportive of that. My mom's been a rock. She's been a great friend. And while I don't agree, you know, with her perspective on everything, obviously, you know, I do feel like she's given me so much love and guidance and generosity. She's one of the most incredibly generous, loving human beings I know. So it What's wasn't one thing, though, <laughs> actually just curious. Yeah, because. Jason and I are such good friends. I've known his mom for years. And I'm actually kind of surprised when you say we don't agree with everything. What's one thing that comes to the top of mind that you and your mom don't agree on? The motorcycle is one. No, well, well, well <laughs> the motorcycle and the fast cars, when, you know, when I started getting into like buying and modifying cars and riding motorcycles almost 20 years ago, like I said, my mom and dad had Porsches and Jaguars and all these old, amazing cars that they would work on, Shelby 427 Cobra, all this crazy stuff for the car fans out there. And they both rode motorcycles. My mom had a Harley and a Honda. So did my dad. They both rode. So when I started to get into it and it was like, oh, fast cars and motorcycles, I was like, oh, pot, meat, kettle. You can't say shit to me, mom. Like, did that you know, remind I was very you, rebellious about it. Did that remind her of your dad? Potentially. You potentially. Like, oh, I don't want Jason to turn out like he did. Or... Was it just that she knew that they were dangerous and so yeah. it was more of a fearful because you're her only child? Yeah, I don't think it was. She's at least never communicated to me that there was a fear that I was going to end up like my father. That's never even been hinted at. Hmm. I think it's just a sheer concern for my safety and protection. Okay, so if it wasn't the motorcycle, what's another point? Because I, honestly, I can't think of anything I've heard you disagree with. Yeah, well, one big thing is sometimes when I've put out content on social media, mostly video content. There's times when I, and I, I wish I could think of something specific right now, one thing doesn't come to mind, but there's been moments where I've spoken my mind on social media and done it in a way that people aren't used to. If I had to generalize about, I think maybe how people have perceived me for most of my career, it's this like happy, bright, sunny, cheerful, like want to entertain you, want to bring you joy type of person. But there's been certain videos where I've been a little more hardcore and you know, I'll and this use, podcast and, and, is going to be like that too. Yeah, and I'll use profanity, and I'll get charged up, and I might, you know, regardless of what how people feel, share my truth. You know, in in sometimes radical ways of like, I don't really give a shit what you think. I'm going to share my truth, and it'll be what it is. Don't you think that's something that's one of the main elements of this podcast? One hundred percent. And so there's been moments where I've radically, and again, I can't think of one off the top of my head, but a, a handful of times where it was like I said something or did something or positioned something, and my mom's like kiddo, um, you know, you might want to think about taking that video down or editing it. And I'm like, no. Why no, do you think that you're resistant to her, given that she has your best interest because, in mind, I assume? Because you know what it is in those moments? It's if I ever feel what my trigger is, is being censored. Why? Why is that a trigger? Because I feel like freedom of expression and sharing our truth is such a vitally important thing for me and for all of us as humans 
to express in this world. I feel like there was so much fear around placating others or people pleasing or telling people what they want to hear. And for a lot of years, I think I was trying to play a role in my career and I wasn't fully speaking my truth and I wasn't fully being 100% myself. And so in moments where it was like, oh, I'm, I'm going to actually just like be edgy right now and I'm going to be charged up or I might be angry or drop some F-bombs or share some of my perspectives of my truth that people may or may not like. But there's a freedom in that that I feel a sense of liberation or getting closer to the truth of who I am. And to get feedback from my mom specifically of like, oh, I don't know if you should say that. It's like, well, it's been said and I ain't taking it down. <laughs> I'm not. But part of it is like in those moments, I would remind my mom because my mom was also very rebellious growing up. And, and she, whenever I do things that are like, yo, I got 14 tattoos. I drive a motorcycle. I adopted five animals. I'm doing, you know, what I'm vegan, <laughs> been in punk rock bands, whatever, you know, skydive edgy just whatever alternative okay it's like it's this thing that whenever she's had like oh kiddo i'm like yo you raised me to have an open mind and to be rebellious and to look at what everyone else is doing and say you know basically like fuck the status quo be you so it's like did those, she consciously raise you that way what did she ever say those things to you my, or do you feel like you were just following her lead because she was like that i think i was well two things i think yes i was following her lead and my mom always encouraged me and still does to question everything and have an open mind and as a result of that of questioning how did everything, she do that well she would tell me like keep your mind open question everything don't take things at face value and whether it's been my explorations in spirituality and health love, art, music, and basically anything that I've been super crazy passionate about, it was always, you know, go full force into it and just go all the way into it and, you know, find your part of it, find your truth in it, find what resonates. And there's never been any pursuit. There's been women, but there haven't been pursuits <laughs> where she was like, I don't know if this is good for you. The mm. women she doesn't think are good for you is what oh, you're there's saying. Been, oh, for sure. There's been, it's so interesting, right? Because I think that for me, from probably a lot of people, there's this natural tendency of like, nah, I don't want to hear it. I love this person. I don't want to just be quiet. Just be happy for me. Just be, can't you just be happy for me? But interestingly, the women that she's been reticent about turned out to, yeah, not be so great for me. So <laughs> and your, kudos, mom mom. Would, your mom is a very intelligent woman. So I'm sure she's like, now, has your mom still been supportive of you and kind of letting you just figure things out on your own like she states her opinion and then she just accepts the fact that you may make a different decision is she that type of person she is yeah mm. where she'll give guidance perspective wisdom and also knows that especially at this point that i'm going to do what i want anyway so i appreciate her you know and it's not often that she'll say hey jace can i tell you how i feel about this but when she does i do as I do with the closest, the very dear and closest people in my life, when someone feels the need to interject and, and share what's on their heart and mind or their perspective on something in my life, I listen. doesn't mean I'm going to agree with it, but I will definitely listen and be present to it. Mm -hmm. Especially if they ask you first. If, yeah. If they can share feedback, you like that a if, lot. If we're talking about triggers, one of the things I got to breathe through still is when I get unsolicited feedback from people. And <laughs> it doesn't matter if you're the closest person in my life or a stranger on the internet. When people chime in with their two cents and I haven't asked for it, it's like... Or they didn't ask permission. Yeah. So I mean, because somebody could approach you and say, hey, do you mind if I give you some feedback? Yeah. Now, that's to me very kind, that approach. My preferred communication style is permission-based communication, where it's, yeah, like you just said, Whitney, hey, I have a perspective on this. I have some feedback. Are you open to it? I might say yes, no, or not right now. 
But when someone launches into something of, hey, you know, they throw a should in, you know, hey, you know, you should. And I'm like, really? (laughs) Thank you for that. Thank you. Thanks for that. I didn't ask. So that's still something I'm working on is to have compassion and patience and tolerance for people that feel the need to do that. Now, I know part of your story is that you came out to Los Angeles. Actually, now I'm a little unclear. Did you come out to California to go to technically wasn't cooking school, right? Because you studied raw food. Isn't that right? So um, if it's not cooking, it's food preparation school. It's culinary school. Culinary. Thank you. Uh Thank you. Okay, so did you come out here and immediately go to culinary school? Is that the first thing that you did in California? Or were you already living in California doing something non-culinary related? I I don't recall the story. You were already a raw foodist, though, in 2005, weren't you? I was. Okay. Yeah, so I did a cross-country road trip from Detroit to California. But why? why? Oh, I knew it was time to leave. But why did you pick California? It was because, like you said, with your dad? Oh, for sure. Your dad was alive. He was out here. My dad was alive. And And were you coming... Like temporarily, did you think that this was gonna you're gonna stay here, here since then? Oh yeah, because I had a massive garage sale in that summer and basically sold the majority of my possessions. I packed up my Honda Prelude, and just drove to L.A. Did you drive with Gary? No. Who did uh, you drive with? Solo. Oh. Yeah, I okay. did a solo solo cross country road trip from nice. from Detroit to L.A. Okay, so but still, some people sell everything and don't think that they're actually going to stay somewhere. Maybe they just don't know where they're going to end up. Did you think then that you were going to stay in Los Angeles for this yeah, long? Absolutely. Really? Yeah, hmm. for sure. What about L.A.? Had you you visited many times? To the, oh, yeah. okay. With, especially with my dad's career in the '80s and early '90s, visited a lot. Visited L.A. a lot. So I was not green to L.A. I had been many times and had a couple family friends here. So when I came out as an adult in 2005, I kind of knew the lay of the land. Not living there, you don't know exactly, but I knew the lay of the land of LA. And what did you think you were going to do for work? Or, or what was your first job? Did you have a job lined up? No. Or you just came here in faith, I'm going to find this job. Mm-hmm. And were you on a certain career path at that point before you went to culinary school? It was music and acting. Yeah. I came out to LA for music and acting. So What do you define as music? Well, I found, so I was in many bands in Chicago and Detroit before that, making music, recording, doing live shows. And one of my best friends who I was in a duo called the Bellicose Butchers, his name is Rob. He actually moved out a few months prior to LA. So he was out here already. There were a few friends from Detroit, two other friends from Detroit. So I knew a few people in Los Angeles. I knew literally a handful, like five people. And I thought, well, that's enough. You know, we'll lean on each other. And I know some people there. I'm not going in like a complete rookie. I've been to LA many, many times. I know the, the general lay of the land. And the idea when I got out here, because I had a little money saved, I had to quit my job. I was working at a children's theater in Detroit as their marketing director and a children's theater teacher. And I quit that job in February of 2005. I traveled to Central America, Costa Rica. I went to Europe for the summer. I just basically traveled that spring and summer. And I was like, yeah, it's time to go to LA. I just knew it. I could feel it. Can you pause there for a second? Because another important thing Mm -hmm. as we lead up to the culinary side of things is you went plant-based in Detroit. Yeah. And what year? Well, I became vegetarian in late 1996 and became vegan in the summer of 98. And when did you go raw vegan? Raw was 04. So about a year before you moved to Los Angeles? Mm -hmm. Hmm. Yeah. Wow. Do you want to share briefly why you decided? I'm sure people could find this in a lot of your interviews, but what's the The rawness or all of it? All of it. Yeah. Why did you go vegetarian, Mm. then vegan, then raw? And then how did that affect 
your life in Los Angeles? When I was little, we found out pretty quickly that I was lactose intolerant, so dairy was off the table. So my mom, after she finished breastfeeding me, put me on soy formula, and I didn't actually have meat at all for maybe the first three years. And there's a funny story when she first served me chicken, how I looked at it and looked up at her and, and was confused and kind of, you know, said like, well, you know, what is this? And she said, it's chicken. And I looked at her quizzically and like did the flapping arm motion. And she said, yeah. And I was so horrified, I refused to eat it. So gradually through, you know, school and hanging out with friends, you just, you get indoctrinated. But my initial instinct was not to eat meat. So when I was 18, my grandfather passed away from cancer and it really kind of set me off into this exploration of, why are people getting sick and dying? You know, cancer and diabetes and heart issues are not some common thing. And there was kind of this attitude of like, oh, it's just what happens when you get older. And so when my grandfather passed, that was actually this beautiful gift, this catalyst that got me researching. At that time, you know, mad cow disease was just coming out in the mid 90s. And I was just kind of getting in tune with my own sense of spirituality and ethics and thought, well, what if I start just cutting out junk food and soda and, you know, artificial foods? I started to feel better. And then one meat at a time. And over the course of three years between 95 and 98, I went from fully standard American diet, junk fooditarian, getting triples at Wendy's, just crazy, nasty, not even on the menu, by the way. I'll take a triple at Wendy's, three patties, it's nuts, to you know May of 1998 being fully vegan. So it was a very gradual thing where the more organic fruits and vegetables and healthy food I eat, I just felt my skin cleared up. I felt better. I lost probably 15 pounds. I just felt good. And I just never looked back. The raw thing came because, yeah, I was along with my, my buddy, Gary Yarovsky. We were pretty hardcore junk food vegans. Like we were getting down with the crazy 2003, 2004, man. It was a lot of Philly cheesesteaks, a lot of sliders, a lot of pizza, just a lot of heavy, junky vegan food. And one day we were in Ohio and we went to a bakery and I've never done this since. I've only done it once in my life. I went to this vegan bakery and I was so excited. What's it called? I can't remember. I think it was in Cincinnati or Cleveland. It was 2003 or four. I can't remember. And I went into this vegan bakery. I was so excited. Like, what do you mean there's a vegan bakery? That I ordered one of everything. And how many items was I, that? Dozens. And on the road trip back to Detroit, I just ate all of these baked goods and I got so sick. And I started to think to myself, like, maybe eating all this junky food is not like the best idea for my health. That's when I discovered raw. The 2004 is the year when Raw Food Real World came out by Matthew Kenyon Sarma. <laughs> and to that point, raw food was like, oh, hummus and cut veggies, right? It was like this just raw. And that book came out. And I remember leafing through the pages and being like, what do you, raw lasagna, like raw noodles, sushi? chocolate avocado pudding. What in the name of God is this? How did you even find that? I honestly don't remember. Well, my mom has the largest collection of vegan cookbooks I've ever seen. She has like two massive bookshelves just full of vegan cookbooks. So I think your mom went vegan as well. What year? My mom went vegan like three or four months after I did in 1998. Okay. So yeah. both of you are vegan. Correct. You're living together, right? Were you living with her in Detroit? Uh-huh. And one of you comes across this raw food. Yeah. And trend. it was like, whoa, this is, damn, this is amazing. And so I remember just digging in and starting to experiment. Also, a person I was dating at the time was getting into raw. And so it was like this whole like, ooh, what's this raw thing? So 2004, 2005, I'm just like rocking this raw food thing. And that led me to an interesting kind of serendipitous moment when I moved out to LA in 05, right? Cross-country road trip. I'm in LA. I'm going on auditions. I'm found, uh, actually my roommate was a musician. We started a new band and started a new project. 
but no money's coming in. You know, I'm watching my savings just drain. And of course, the cost of living was substantively more in LA. I was paying my last flat in Detroit. I was paying $175 a month in rent. $175 a month in 2005. So needless to say, if you don't have a gig in a big city like LA or New York and you come from a place where you're paying $175 a month in rent, holy crap, that was culture shock. So I'm watching my savings drain. I'm like, okay, this is getting uncomfortable, really uncomfortable. And I, was, I went to the Euphoria Company in Santa Monica because I'd heard about it. And it was Janabai Owens. And at that time, her partner, Matt, Matt Amsden, had the Revolution delivery service. This was before the restaurant even opened. And I went to Euphoria Company and I, was, I met Janabai for the first time. And she's like, oh, yeah. So, you know, I was telling her I'm thinking about going to culinary school. She's like, do you know about Living Light Culinary Academy? I was like, what the hell is Living Light Culinary Academy? She said it's a fully raw vegan, you know, culinary school up in Northern Cal. I was like, sign me up. I went on the website the next day. And I enrolled in their chef's training and I... Why did you decide though? What was the, the thought process and emotional reaction to that? Well, it, it was so exciting and I was so just on fire for the whole raw vegan culinary thing because, you know, 2005, like that was still in its infancy. It was like, whoa, what is... Like it was very exciting. And it was very exciting because I had always loved to cook food. My mom and my grandmother rose amazing, amazing cooks. Like I got my love of food because our family was just... We loved food. Food was a bonding experience in my family. It was a very sacred thing to get together at the dinner table and make food and eat food. So the raw thing was just exciting. It was fresh. It was new. There weren't many places. I think in LA at that time, there were only, there was a Giuliano's Planet Raw, and then there was Taste of Goddess, where you used to work. And Who is you? Oh, Whitney. <laughs> yeah. And it was just exciting. And I, I thought, I really need to create an opportunity for me to make some money because acting in music is not paying the bills. So. It was this ancillary art form that I loved that I thought, well, maybe I can do this as a career. So full disclosure, the reason I went to culinary school is because I wasn't making money as a musician or an actor. It was kind of like, I need a plan B here because I'm drowning. So that's why I actually went to culinary school. It was not plan A. It was so not plan A. you finished up culinary school and you came back to LA. Did you immediately start working in the raw food world? I got a job offer to be the head chef at Revolution under Matt Amsden, and I turned it down turned it down. It didn't feel like the right opportunity. Why? Sadly, Revolution is closed, but it, it was a fantastic raw food restaurant in Los Angeles. Mm -hmm. And I hearing you talk about it, it's bringing back a lot of memories. Yeah. It was in Santa Monica, Venice area. They had a lot of really creative foods. Yeah. So I'm fresh out of culinary school. I apply for a job because they were opening Revolution in the winter of 05. And it might have been the pay, honestly. I remember it was like 11 or 12 bucks an hour. And I was like, what? Can't live on this in LA, man. So I ended up getting a job offer to go back to Detroit and open a cafe there. So I went back for a few months. My girlfriend at the time, though, was living in New York City. And we were in this mode of someone needs to make a decision here, like shit or get off the pot. Like someone's going to come to New York or I'm going to come there. And so I actually left that gig in Detroit and uh, ended up working for Matthew Kenny at the Jiva Muti Cafe in New York City. I moved to New York. So... My culinary Matthew Kenny, for reference, is... Matthew Kenny is the originator, one of the co-founders of Pure Food and Wine in New York. He's written many, many, many amazing raw and vegan cookbooks. He now is the proprietor of Plant Food and Wine in Venice. He's got restaurants literally all over the world. Uh, the double Zero of, Pizza. Yeah, Double Zero Pizza. I mean, he's also got a yeah. food line, packaged food line coming out. He's a prolific chef, and he was also a great mentor to me. You know, he was my first real culinary mentor out of culinary school who 
took me under his wing and, and when he was available was guiding me at the cafe. And, and now full circle, that cafe is now in Los Angeles or they have like a health and wellness center in LA. Where Jiva you take, Mukti? Yeah, where you take yoga, right? Yeah. So the Jiva Mukti Yoga Center where I was the chef at their cafe back in 2006, they opened earlier this year in- 2019. In 2019 this year uh, in the downtown LA Arts District, which is close to my house. So I started going as a throwback. Like I hadn't done Jiva Mukti Yoga at a Jiva Mukti Center since I lived. No, it's not true. I went when I visited in 08, but it had been 11 years since I did a Jiva Mukti Yoga class. And it was just so familiar and sweet and the energy was good and, and it is good. So yeah, it's, it's been a full circle interesting thing to be practicing at Jiva Mukti again. So through your culinary career, which we won't go too much in depth because I feel like there's so many interviews of Jason talking about this. So we can link to some in the show notes at wellevator.com, W-E-L-L-E-V-A-T-R.com. And just the, the summary, though, is that you work for Matthew Kenny. You come back to Los Angeles. What made you make that decision? Well, when I was living in New York City, my girlfriend at the time, who was also a chef, got a job offer to work for Google. And you don't really turn down Google. It's like, oh, the great Goog is making you a job offer. You better damn well take it. So we left New York and moved to Silicon Valley. Silicon Valley was not my vibe at all. It didn't feel like a place that resonated with me energetically. So I spent most of my time when I was living in the Bay there in either Santa Cruz or San Francisco. So I thought about moving to San Francisco. I ended up actually moving to Santa Cruz after my girlfriend and I broke up because there were a lot of factors in that breakup. That's not the point of this podcast, but I knew I didn't want to be in Silicon Valley. It just it just wasn't my vibe. It was very suburban, very techy, very white. It just, eh, it just, it felt very sterile to me. So it was in Santa Cruz, San Francisco, and the Bay Area, I have so much love for the, I love San Francisco. I love that city. I love Santa Cruz. But it felt to me like the itch to have more opportunity was not there. You know, it felt like the ceiling was kind of low in a way. And I wanted to do music. I wanted to keep the music going. I wanted to keep the acting going. But it felt to me like LA was just calling me. I don't know. It was an intuitive thing that LA was like, no, it's time for you to come back. Had your dad passed away at this point? No, dad was still alive. What year is this? This is 2007. So 07, I'm in the Bay Area and my intuition is like, you need to get your ass back to LA. I was like, okay. So I moved back to Los Angeles in April, April 1st, April Fool's Day of 2007. And I've been here ever since. And there's been many permutations. You know, I, I had a catering business with my friend Mike for about a year and a half. I was doing celebrity personal chefing. I did nutritional consultations for people. And really when things started to pivot in a really interesting way was, you know, YouTube and social media. 2000, or January of 2011 is when I got my first sponsorship deal on my YouTube channel. The story behind your very first YouTube video, wasn't it like a submission for something? No, my very first YouTube video ever is me doing a culinary demo from 2009 with David Wolf at the launch of the Longevity Lifestyle Series. But when they were launching the Longevity Now Conference, which for those of you who've never heard of this, it was one of the largest health and wellness conferences for many, many years, just kind of a global thing where people from all over the world would come. So it was a launch party. It was actually a live stream all day thing with David Wolf, where musicians and chefs and people were coming in. I wasn't even supposed to be on camera. I was catering the event. I came in and catered the event. And then David and his team were like, are you good on camera? I was like, yeah. They're like, do you want to jump in and like do a demo with David? Not even planned, completely improvised. I don't know if I've seen this video. And I'm wearing a freaking cor brown corduroy jacket and like a Paddington <laughs> bear hat. Like a it's just ridiculous, the fashion. Jason's, Jason's style has shifted a lot over the years. It's kind of fun. 
I'm thinking that it'd be nice to include some photos in the show notes. I think we on should our website. Be, because the best fashion sense of 2009 for me was probably best described as a burlap boho hippie <laughs> chic. It's like, is this dude wearing a burlap sack and like a cord? What the hell is going on here? We'll so, definitely link to that video in the show notes at wellevator.com. Yeah, the, the OG. So the very, yeah, the very first video I ever uploaded in early July of 2009 was a two-part food demo with David Wolf. But shortly after that, isn't there a video where you're submitting to some TV show? Yeah, the, a few videos in, there's a, a demo recipe when Oprah in 2011 was casting for her own network. When she left her show and formed her own TV channel, OWN, she was doing a casting call for your own show, where whoever was going to get selected was going to get their own series on the Oprah network. And so I went for it and I actually got a casting call. The casting agents called me and they actually talked to me and, and said, hey, you know, you've made it to the next round. We want to talk to you. So I remember that call was like, oh, my, like freak out because that was the first big bite I had ever had in Hollywood, you know, of like, whoa, like the casting agents actually called and like want to have an hour talk with me. So obviously didn't get my own show on the Oprah's network, but I sang. Yet. I danced. I made food. I gave it my all. And I, yes, that's up there too. <laughs> yeah, we'll put that video on the show notes. Oh, man. So let's see. So going back to your dad. Yeah. Can you share the, the final experiences with him and how that has affected you as well? Yeah. What year is this? And well, I, as a precursor, I didn't see my dad at all through the 90s, maybe 1990. And part of that is that he moved uh, away, but he also had another extension of his family. Yeah. Right? So Did he marry someone? I don't know. Unbeknownst to me until a few years ago, I had no idea that my father had started another family and had a couple of other kids. So I have a half-brother and half-sister who I've never met. And I just didn't see my father in the 90s. I mean, even the late 80s, it was probably a good 10 to 12 to 13 years that I did not see him or speak to him or connect with him. And then in 2001, I got a phone call from a, a family friend who lives out here in LA, who's been friends with my mom and dad for decades, said, hey, you know, your dad's back in Detroit. Do you want to see him? And I was like, what do you mean he's back in Detroit? He's like, well, he's actually in jail. I was like, oh, okay. My dad had like his third or fourth DUI and they, they threw him in jail. So I was writing letters with my dad while he was in jail and I went to go see him, you know, for the first time in well over a decade. And that was a really strange meeting because I was an adult. I was what, 22 or 23 at that time. And I wanted certain answers from him, like man to man, like, you know, I asked him like real ass questions. And I don't know that he was interested or even in touch with giving me his authentic perspective on things. You know, I just asked him some very pointed, direct questions, and it felt to me like he wasn't really being real with me. And that was disappointing because I wanted some realness. I wanted to like connect with this man and understand him. I wanted to understand him. And so fast forward, I didn't see him for another four years. And then I'm in LA. I moved out in September of 05. Same family friend says, hey, you know, your dad's back in LA. Do you want to see him? This was right the day before Thanksgiving. And I went to Westwood near UCLA. And it was like, meet your dad at the, outside the El Pollo Loco. I was like, okay. And my dad's homeless at this point. My dad had been homeless for several years and he had this really long, grisly beard and he was walking very slow. And, and it was my first time like, wow, my dad has really been not good to himself, his body. And like, it was, it was kind of shocking, you know? And I spent about two hours with him walking around Westwood and just talking. And he was like, you know who you need to marry? I was like, who? He's like, that one Latino girl. I'm like, Jennifer Lopez? He's like, no, Christina Aguilera? No. And so like for a half hour, we're trying to figure out who he wants me to marry. He's like, oh, Cameron Diaz, that's who. So my, my dad was like, I need to marry Cameron Diaz. She's taken by one of the guys from Good Charlotte, dad, sorry. But 
gradually, my dad, in his homelessness and his drug and alcohol abuse, was estranging himself from anybody who had contact with him. So 2006 was the last time anybody had heard from him. And fast forward to early 2011, actually at Natural Products Expo in 2011, my mom calls me the last day as we're wrapping up the booth and said, hey, I have some information about your dad. Can we talk? And I'm at Expo, the wrap-up day. And Expo is this you know, giant trade show with thousands of people. And she said, I found information online that he passed away last year. So my dad passed away in 2010. None of us knew. Nobody knew. He got sick and had to go be admitted to a county hospice. And he died. And they scattered his ashes in the ocean. So Who's they? The wards of the state who were taking care of him. You know, they put him in a county facility, a county hospice. And so my dad, you know, the thing about my dad, there's been so much forgiveness that I've chosen to do with him and work on. And the thing that still I have pain around with him is not so much I wish he had been there or I wish he'd been a different father. I've made peace with those things. It's that this human being had so much talent and potential and chutzpah and charm and love and the pain and the suffering and the demons, if you will, that he had from his upbringing and his father and his family life that he never fully healed or learned how to work with that trauma eventually consumed him, you know? And so the thing that breaks my heart when I still think about it sometimes is just the loss of such a talented, loving, warm being who was never able to pull himself out of that suffering he was in and ended up literally destroying himself. It was kind of like a slow suicide. So that's, you know, when I get choked up about it and I get emotional. It's just, it's not, again, it's because of just like this human being that just chose to destroy himself so slowly. I mean, I don't know that he had a choice, honestly. So I'm grateful for the lessons of my father. I'm grateful for whatever genetic gifts he's given me. And I'm trying to do my best to take those genetic gifts or that imprinting and do good in the world with it and not to allow the suffering or the mental challenges of my own to consume me or destroy me. So there's still more letting go that I need to do with my dad around that of making peace with the choices he made because it was his life. And it just gets sad sometimes when I think about it still. So this is 2011. That was a really big turning point in your life. Mm-hmm. So what happened after that with your lifestyle and your career? Well, 2011 was just this interesting kind of confluence of things, you know, career-wise where it was like the celebrity personal chefing was going strong and I was getting a lot of traction with that, you know, working with different people. YouTube, I had my first sponsorship and was getting paid to do YouTube videos. And this was before anyone was considered an influencer or any of those things. I was like, whoa, I'm, your companies are paying me to do videos? Holy crap. So it was this interesting merging of I get to act and be on camera and have this persona. And I get to teach people nutrition and food, which is also a love of mine. So as I went on, I was realizing that I had this ability to amalgamate my passions. It didn't have to be, oh, music's over here and food's over there and acting's over there. It's like, what if I just mash these up? And while I'm making food, I can be funny and tell jokes and be this character that I am and throw in some music, throw in some singing. And, you know, that really just started to gain a lot of ground. And, you know, that's really ultimately the YouTube thing and longevity is what led to eventually getting some interest with Cooking Channel and Food Network. And that eventually led to the TV deal, How to Lift 100. And, you know, I always like to say that... (laughs) I view myself as the Justin Bieber of the vegan food world because, you know, that's how he got discovered by Usher was on YouTube, his singing videos. And so I'm like, well, that's how Cooking Channel discovered me. They found my videos. I'm the Justin Bieber of veganism. Mm -hmm. So the cooking show on on television led to the cookbook deal. Correct. Yeah. With Hay House. Yep. And the cookbook led to touring with Wanderlust and doing the online courses with them. And, 
yeah, it just seems like there was an interesting domino effect of one project leading itself, unfolding itself into one and the other and the other. There's just, it seems to be there's just been kind of an interesting natural progression to all that. So you had this at least 10-year career in the culinary world, right? You come out to L.A. in 2005. You go to culinary school shortly after. You get a TV show 2012. Yeah, that's when we right? got the pilot deal. Mm-hmm. And it started airing at the end of 2012 or beginning of 2013? January 2013. Right. The show, unfortunately, got canceled. One season. But it's still running. Mm-hmm. So you can look it up, How to Live to 100. I'm pretty sure you can buy it on Amazon, too. iTunes or and Amazon, iTunes, yeah. both. It's a, actually a very affordable price. I think you can buy the whole st- season for like $10 or something. So we'll link, we'll link to that. <laughs> Worth the price of admission. It actually, it's a great show. Thanks. It's a great show. And it was hard for me as a friend to watch Jason go through the heartbreak of that being canceled because he felt like this was the pinnacle of this career. I feel like we talked about this on another episode. Did we? Or is that my imagination? I don't remember. I'm pretty. If we did, we will link to that in the show notes. But another reason to keep listening to this podcast, because we could dig into a lot of this even deeper. And so there was a point, you know, you published this cookbook. You admittedly did not feel like that went as well as you hoped it would, correct? Mm-hmm. And so this is around, what year was the cookbook? 2016. Oh, wow. Okay. So a few years ago. Mm-hmm. But there was a point somewhere between that 2016 and today now in, in mid-2019 where you've said to me several times since that, You don't want to be known as a chef anymore. Mm -hmm. You have sometimes felt like you wanted to implode all your social media accounts. Mm -hmm. What happened for you after those, let's say, 11 years or so as in the professional culinary world? And you just described how it felt really good for a while to be acting and doing music and food, a lot of your passions in one. There did come this turning point for you in your mind that you might want to give it all up. And actually, I'm curious, because I'm not 100% sure, do you still feel that way? Because you continue to make choices that are culinary related. You have embraced music separately. So even today, Jason was working on some new songs. So perhaps you can look forward to that. I try to get him to sing as often as possible on, on this show. The acting, sometimes you've dabbled in voiceover and you've done some on camera work, but it's still very connected to culinary. Mm -hmm. So the question that I have is, what was the first inkling in your head, again, somewhere around 2016, that you might not want to do this anymore? Why have you continued to do it? And is there still an endpoint in your head or are you letting it flow? Great questions. The reason that I started to have all of those feelings was because I made a decision to shelve the acting and the music and the other styles of writing that I enjoyed to focus solely on growing and kind of exploding my culinary career. And I think that my spirit my soul was reacting against like, you, this can't be the only thing. It was an idea that I had that if I just pick one thing and just that's my career, just this is what I am, then I would be fulfilled and satisfied by that. And especially getting the kind of external material accolades of being, oh, wow, you're the first vegan chef with a primetime TV series in history. Well, that should be, yeah, pat on the back, man. You got this great cookbook deal or you're working with all these celebrities or blah, blah. Like, It was this idea of how far can I take this? And not at the end of it, but when it was kind of like a period of evaluation, I was still not feeling 100% creatively expressed. There were still things in me that wanted to be addressed and let out. It was almost like you're going to feed this one child and let the rest of them starve. And I started to have my soul be like, yo, you can't keep ignoring these other passions. 
And a lot of the frustration and anger was self-created because I had chosen to just, I'm just going to focus on my culinary career. And the reality is now that I think it's also a frustration of when we brand ourselves, when I branded myself, there's this expectation of like, that was Jason the chef, chef Jason. But no one else, no one ever wanted to talk to me about my music or my acting or my literary stuff or the script, you know, any of the stuff that I was passionate about. It's like when people would see me or meet me, it's like, oh, dude, recipes, food. Hey, what kind of B vitamins should I take? Oh, dude, how was the cooking? Like, I just started to grow frustrated with feeling pigeonholed of all anybody ever wanted to talk about was food. And I was like, you know, like, that's not all there is to me, right? You don't know this. Okay, cool. So then I need to invest time to shift away and pivot away from being just a chef. All I want is recipes and talk about nutrition all the damn time. Like I started to get burnt out and frustrated because that was just like the only conversation always. So I still really like making food, but I don't have any desire to solely focus on the pursuit of being a celebrity chef, right? Like that whole thing, because it's much like anything else. I think that there can be this myopic, fervent, psychotic pursuit of something. And then when you get a taste of it and on the other side of it, it's like, oh, this isn't what I thought it was going to be. Or maybe I don't feel as satisfied or fulfilled as I thought I would, right? Getting the TV show, the cookbook deal, doing Pebble Beach food and wine, cooking for celebrities, all that stuff was fantastic. But there was a part of my creativity, my soul that wasn't satisfied because I had sacrificed all of these other things to do that and get there. So now I'm not abandoning my expertise and wisdom and years of experience with food and nutrition because it doesn't feel right to abandon it. But nor do I want to be considered or brand myself as just a chef, which is why I've changed like my social profile, like pro plant pusher. It doesn't say like celebrity vegan chef anymore. Because I need to be mindful of changing the narrative around who I am. Cool. Singer-songwriter. Mental health advocate. Podcast host. Yes, I still will do acting and TV hosting. But being just a chef, I can't. My soul, like when I think about just doing that, part of me inside goes, no. That's not what we want anymore. And I know it because when I remember brainstorming, conceptualizing the recipes for the TV series, or the first cookbook, or some of the ebooks I've done, or the courses, there was this, you know, like, oh, yay, we get to like be in the kitchen and come up with new recipes and da da da. Now, to be honest, after, you know, 320 something videos on YouTube and 154 recipes in the cookbook and some of the other projects I've done, you know, releasing literally hundreds of recipes, I don't want to make new recipes. It's not in me right now. It might come back. I'm open to it coming back. But right now, I don't want to make any more recipes right now. I don't feel compelled. There's not a deep compulsion to do that right now. There's a deep compulsion to do other things, be on stage and sing, record this new music that seems to want to flow out of me, right? Last night I was telling Whitney, it's like one in the morning, spring up, like, where is this song coming from? I had to record it right away because it's just wanting to flow out of me. So my long answer- Can you answer, sing a little part of it? No. Really? I can't. Please, you can, but you're, you look uh, like you're getting shy. It's about a specific person that we know. But and can, you, I'm, can you just uh, sing a little clip without giving anything away? Her name's in it. So if I every say, word her name is yeah, in it. Well, the core. <laughs> I, okay, so a little insight into how my I've noticed that creativity flows through me and/or how my brain works with music. For whatever reason, and this is like ninety nine percent of the songs I've written over the years, the chorus always comes first to me. The hook. And so last night, or this morning rather, one a.m. It was the hook. It was like, oh my god, the chorus. Whoa, that's a dope chorus. And I just I had to capture it because there's been so many nights where I didn't 
turn on the recorder on my phone, and the next morning I would try and think of the musical idea, and it was gone. It was just gone. So I was like, oh, wake up, dude. Record this. Okay, I have an idea. Replace her name with Suzanne, which almost sounds like Susan. Or maybe it could just be no, Susan. No, it has to be Suzanne. Okay, let's hear it. Um, oh, God, how does it go? Now I'm on the spot, and I'm, I'm needing to think of how it goes. Oh, okay. Oh, so the chorus is like, maybe I'll do the bass line. I'll throw it all in. Okay, so it goes. It goes <laughs> this is in. the first time I'm hearing this, too. Suzanne, do 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 do. Where did you run to now, Suzanne? Do 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 do. Maybe to your hiding place, Suzanne. Do 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 do. When can I kiss your face, Suzanne? Do 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 do. When will you let me in, Suzanne? Wow. How does it feel to sing that? Great. And <laughs> in like, front of somebody else. Yeah. It was Am great. I the first person yeah, that's heard it? Yeah. And there's this whole like little bass line that I wrote and piano parts. And like there's this cool whistling that like <laughs> there's like a whistle part to it too. There's like, a whistle hook. Can I hear a little bit of that? The whistle part is like. <laughs> right. So it's like it's like all these layers, all these layers of just like. You know, and another thing too, just really quick creatively, music to me works the same way as building a recipe. Whereas when the ideas for a song come, it's like the layers of flavor and texture. You know, you have you have like the bass and the drums, which are like holding everything down. That's like, you know, the heavier part of the dish, if you will. That's like a heavy sauce or like the bed of quinoa or something holding the dish down. But then you have the melody, the vocals, the guitar parts, the whistling, the piano, all these layers. And to me, my mind conceptually views building a recipe the same way it views building a song. And I, I've known so many other chefs like Greg Arnold, Scott Weingard, some of the other great chefs in our community that are also tremendous musicians. And we've powwowed on that, how like, yeah, our brains just interpret making music and making a recipe the same way. It's very interesting. And I don't find any other art form quite like that. Those two. There's a synergy with those two things. Mm. So... Where do you see yourself going now that you've had a television show, a cookbook? Not to say that you felt fully fulfilled by either of them. Yeah. Right? And you still felt like there was more to go. But what are you working on right now aside from this podcast? And do you have any other big dreams or goals that have been on your heart? I've had an idea for a children's TV series that I would like to do someday with puppets and characters and like a crazy variety show, Pee Wee's Playhouse meets Mr. Rogers meets The Muppet Show with music and food and entertainment and memorable characters. But beyond that, and I bring in the Mr. Rogers thing to talk about not just merely entertaining children, but infusing them with messages of equality and inclusion and healthfulness and positivity and processing their emotions and positive communication. And I just feel like there is an opportunity to talk to children and reach children in a very creative, memorable way, much like the shows I grew up on that touched me. And I feel like there's a, a great possibility. I've had this concept floating around for like three years now. So children's show is still there, floating around in the cosmos of my mind. I want to record a solo album of the music that I've been working on that burns very deeply. It's not even just like an optional thing. It's like, I need to do that. There's a part of my creative being that's like, you have to do that. And getting this podcast to as many people as possible and getting as many ears around it. And I don't feel like there's an end goal like there was previously in my career, which, which was basically become a celebrity chef, 
get a TV series, you know, be famous, make a shit ton of money. And it's like, I don't have a pointed goal like that anymore. What I'm more interested in doing is allowing myself to be led to where my creativity and soul and intuition wants to guide me. What the end goal is, is contentment. Honestly, like what I'm interested in now is genuine, like peace of mind and contentment, not happiness. Oh, happiness. No, I'm like contentment, like all is well. And I feel grateful for this moment and who I am and what I have. And I have no idea what the next moment will bring, but like, that's it now. Like contentment and peace. That's it for me. And speaking of content, we left out a big part of your life, which I feel like we just need to mention. Jason doesn't know I'm what I'm talking about. <laughs> what? There's many other big parts. Well, let me see. What year was this? Probably 2013, I think. Jason and I have been in each other's lives since late 2012 on a deep level. We had known each other. We don't remember when we first met, but because we work in these worlds of YouTube and veganism and all of that, Somehow we had crossed some paths and knew each other and, and ran into each other here and there. But we started dating in 2012 and dated for a few years and then transitioned into friendship. But I think it must have been while we were dating. I started to bug Jason about getting a cat. Huh. That's and, a yeah, bug is correct. Pester is more. <laughs> and I would bring it up to him and he would say, no, I don't have time for a cat. I travel too much to have a cat. He had all these excuses. And so at a certain point, I started to feel like maybe it wasn't going to happen. I don't know why I was so attached to him getting a cat. I have my dog, Evie, and Jason and I both love cats. I don't know. I actually, I wish I could remember why I was so committed to encouraging Jason maybe to get a cat. Maybe you thought it would be good for my mental, emotional health? It's possible. I don't know. I think to I care just, for something? I just knew that Jason loved cats, and I was kind of perplexed as to why he didn't have one. And so by the magic of the universe... One of us heard about some kittens. Was it you that heard about the kittens? It was an email through Ellie, through okay. an acquaintance of Ellie's, our good friend Ellie. Ellie sent this email forwarded, to, for, to Jason forwarded and to me, me maybe. Mm -hmm. We should go and look up that email. It'd be kind of funny it. to go back on it. I still have it. But she knew of this woman in, in the area between where I lived and where Jason lived, and we traveled a lot between there. She had four kittens, and... The interesting thing was, is that, you know, I had been encouraging Jason to get one cat, but the caveat was that this woman was hoping that somebody would take two of the four so that they could stay together because there was two sisters and two brothers. And I think at least the brother was taken. I don't know about the sister if they both went to the same family, two of know. them, but some of them had already been claimed. <laughs> and Jason had this shift. Was it 2013? No, it was spring of 2014. Oh, okay. Okay. That mm -hmm. makes more sense. There's something shifted in Jason where he had a new openness. And so I was a little bit surprised that he was willing to go check out these kittens. I was ecstatic. <laughs> <laughs> and so I went with him to see these kittens and they were just so cute. They were in this bathroom and there were two female black kittens, fluffy, and two gray tabby males. Mm -hmm. And we sat down and Jason was trying to uh, act like he didn't care. But as soon as these kittens got into his lap, he slowly started to fall in love. And I captured this all on camera. We have this moment documented of him meeting these kittens who mm -hmm. became his cats, Lynx and Claudia, the That's original. Right. So what I thought would just, he was so resistant to just one cat. And then suddenly, <laughs> suddenly he had two. And at one point he, within like a week or so, he threatened to return them. 
because driving me nuts. he was so overwhelmed and oh he was God. he kept saying to me, I told you I didn't want a cat and now I have two cats and these kittens are driving me nuts. And <laughs> I actually thought that he might return the kittens, but fortunately he stuck it through. Mm-hmm. And now they're how old? They just turned five. Oh, so Lynx and Claudia. The OGs, I call them. And then the funny part is on one of Jason's birthdays. What year was this? Next year, 2015. Jason was looking for a new place to live. And we went to this house, which was funny enough, in an area where Jason now lives. But back in 2015, he, he actually turned down this house. It was not in good condition. The people that had been living there Evicted. They were evicted, yep. So they're literally cockroaches. There was trash all over. I mean, it was in not in good shape. And Jason, it was on your birthday, July yeah. 6th. Correct. Yep, 2015. Correct. We had just actually gone to Matthew Kenny. So it, funny how a lot of stories start weaving together here. We went to eat up at Plant Food and Wine in Venice, which is owned by Matthew Kenny, who we mentioned earlier. And afterwards, we, we just went to check out this place because the guy was only available at certain times. It was late at night. It was probably like 10 o'clock. Mm-hmm. We go to this neighborhood. It wasn't the nicest neighborhood. We show up and we had to wait in the car for the man that owned the property to come show it to us. And as we were waiting there, we, we saw these kittens running around the street. And we thought, this Three is interesting. Three or four of them. Yeah. And we get out of the car to meet the man. And as we walk up to the house, one of the kittens ran up onto the ledge, the, the stairs up to the house. And Jason asked this guy, what's the deal with this cat? Right. <laughs> and and the man says, oh, the family that lived here that just got evicted abandoned it. They left the cat here. And I have to call animal control to come pick it up. And without even hesitating, Jason said, oh, that's okay. I'll, I'll take it. Well, because I knew that LA City animal control will take any animal to a high kill shelter. So the, <sighs> the chances of this animal who just got abandoned literally throughout by his family on the street. Now you're going to take him to a shelter where the probability of this cat getting euthanized is high. Like I, I literally was like, no, fuck that. Yeah. I mean, and your was... reaction was hilarious. <laughs> what was you were fun? like, you like whipped your head around like, <laughs> like you couldn't believe what I said, but I, it was so clear to me though, that like the trauma this animal had been through. And now you're basically like for all intents and purposes, maybe giving him a death sentence by taking him to this high, you know, who knows, but probability is what it is. I was like, no, like, that's not okay. And this cat was so sweet. This young, we Tuxedo later find cat. out, yeah, black and white, about eight months old. Mm-hmm. So sweet. He followed us around the property and just kept rubbing up against us. He just wanted to be loved. He was so excited that there was someone there. It's so heartbreaking, actually, to re- remember that. So we take this strange cat and put it in Jason's car. We don't have a carrier. We're completely unprepared. We don't know anything about this cat. But I, I remember getting in the car and just being amazed. How the cat just got in with us and sat on my lap to the drive home. It was 15, 20 minutes back to Jason's place. And your concept was to just foster this cat and then find it a home. Did and not I, want a third cat. And I kept saying to him, oh, are you sure you don't want to keep him? You know, I just, for some reason, have this this weird side of me that wants to encourage Jason to, to have more animals. And so here he is. He's already got two cats. And now this third is living at his place, but Jason was determined to find it a home. And long story short, that never happened. And he couldn't find the right home for it. And he decided to keep this cat who has now been named Figaro. And here we are four years later, still living with Jason. And the story's not over yet. Still not paying rent. (laughs) Then in 2018? 17. 17. 
the fourth cat appears in Jason's life. And this one was more interesting. I'm going to let you tell this story because I wasn't even that involved, believe it or not. I was very highly involved with the first three cats. But the fourth one. Yeah, Julius, Bartholomew, little orange cat, our good friend, Brittany, who has a wonderful rescue in town called Little Love Rescue, posts adoptable animals on her Instagram feed all the time. And I saw this little orange kitten. I was like, oh, God, this little creamsicle fool, this little creamsicle (laughs) fool, this ginger Yoda. And I just kind of like had this idea of like, well, I've already got three. Fuck it. Let me go meet this cat. So I went and saw this little munchkin. And yeah, I mean, it was just like ridiculous, this cute little orange fool. And yeah, I mean, I just like, at that point, it was like, what's one more? What's one more? (laughs) You know, I've already got three. What's one more, honestly? So Julius Bartholomew, this tiny little orange fluff ball came in and immediately started terrorizing everyone, which he still does to this day. He's an incredibly loving cat and also... He's the smallest one. He's the runt of everyone. And he just he beats the hell out of everyone. It's so funny. And he's very dominant. He's very dominant. But it's adorable because he's just this tiny or he's two now, but he's small. He's a small cat. He's this tiny cat who just just goes berserker on everyone. <laughs> and there's one more part of this story before we wrap up. So I don't know when when I got this obsession, but somehow similar to how I was committed to encouraging Jason to get just one cat. I never expected him to have four. Trust me. No one did. I would have been satisfied with one, but this is what happened. Somewhere in these years of us being each other's lives, I got obsessed with the idea that Jason would get a French bulldog. Well, and, I've always and it loved wasn't, Frenchies too. It wasn't just any dog. Mm-hmm. It was specifically a French bulldog. Yes. I mean, this was locked in my head. It, it's similar to be how little kids get obsessed with something, no matter what you do, you can't convince them to stop obsessing over it and they won't leave you alone until they have it. Yes. That's how I was. And so I would talk to Jason about French bulldogs all the time and and I would point them out and I I loved them. I didn't want one though. I have my wonderful Jack Russell Evie. I just had this strong desire for Jason to get this French bulldog. And in March of 2018, we were at the Natural Products Expo again, coming full circle, and we saw this adorable. Somebody had brought oh, their that French dog bulldog was there. So sweet, so sweet. They call it a blue Frenchie. It's like a bluish gray color. And around that time, I said to Jason, "Will you just humor me? Will you tell me what would be your perfect French bulldog?" And he said to me, "It's got to be a girl, and I want it to be a blue gray color, right?" And she's got to get along with the cats. Yes, he was. What's the term? Becoming open Indul- to the idea. Maybe. You, I think you were also indulging me. Like you still didn't think that it was anywhere near on the horizon. But no. unbeknownst to both of us, one night I opened up Instagram and that same account, the Little Love Rescue run by our friend Brittany, posted a picture of a female blue French bulldog. And it was like, to me, this pivotal moment, I immediately called Jason and said, you need to message her right now. And we need to meet this dog because finding a French bulldog rescue, A, that's a young dog, but also one that doesn't have any major health problems, which were all listed in this post. This is like a diamond in the rough. Most people get French bulldogs from a breeder, which Jason also did not want to do. And a lot of French bulldogs have health issues, right? So this dog, I just saw, saw this post and I thought, we cannot waste any time. And Jason's you know, I'm on the phone with him and he's all annoyed. He's like, no, I don't want to meet this dog. I'm not ready for one. 
I won't do it. And then at some point his mind changed. I think maybe even you just thought, you know what, I'll just message Brittany, but who knows, we might not even meet this dog. It might already be taken Mm because they're in such high demand, right? Right. But somehow this dog was still available. And because Brittany knows us, she wanted us to meet the dog. And she told us when we met the dog that there were a lot of people that were offering double, triple the amount, the adoption fee, because it was like people trying to compete to get this dog. Thousands and thousands of dollars. So again, Jason's thinking, I don't even have a chance, right? Even paying the adoption fee, it was pretty high, but we also knew it was going to a good place, right? That's a nice thing when you adopt an animal. You get to, in most cases, help out an organization. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So anyways, I remember meeting this dog for the first time, and she was even cuter in person. She was this tiny, special dog. But most notably, she was in our friend's arms when we met her. And as soon as our friend Brittany put her down on the ground, she didn't run to me. She ran into Jason's arms. And I captured it all on camera because I I felt very confident that this was going to be Jason's dog. And a few days later, he made the decision. Actually, Brittany made the decision to pick Jason out of all of them. She just felt like he was the right home for this dog. And Jason then decided that he was going to move forward with it. And Bella came into his life. And now he has five animals. Hear that, ladies? (laughs) Oh, yeah. I mean... Listen, if you're anything like me, there's plenty of women out there that would probably find that a turn on. You're caring for these animals. If anybody likes cats, and who doesn't like French bulldogs, really, right? Horrible people. (laughs) Horrible people don't like French (laughs) bulldogs. So before we wrap this up, how has your life been impacted by these animals, Jason? They've taught me a lot. They're great teachers. And they're great teachers in the sense of, first of all, they've taught me a lot of patience. A lot of patience. Because you have these beings that have needs and desires but can't verbally communicate them to you in a language you understand. So it's a constant decoding of trying to understand these animals and their signals. And there's a relationship. There's a nonverbal relationship. So it's taught me a lot of patience. And it's also taught me that, especially in the case of, say, Figaro, that one can come from a really abusive situation or a situation where there's a lot of sorrow and that... Abandonment, An abandonment, which is my probably deepest core wound, personally, and that one can learn to trust again and heal. And it might take years. You know, in the case of Figaro, it took him years to like soften and trust and be affectionate and like allow me to be affectionate with him. And then you have Bella, who's also interesting. We don't don't know that much about her, but she's two years old when you got her? Yeah, she's three now. Mm -hmm. So two years, she was actually used to be bred. Yeah, she was a breeder dog. And the little that we know is that she was basically rescued out of the breeding situation, which Mm -hmm. is generally not that healthy, especially for a small dog. And what's amazing about Bella is that maybe she wasn't abused. We don't know, right? How those tiny hips were abused. Popping out puppies, those little baby hips. But she is one of the sweetest. So it's interesting because... Figaro, we also don't know for sure if he was abused, but he's demonstrated in his behavior a lack of trust and he's got fear and he doesn't like to be touched very much. Then you have Bella, who just loves human beings so much and she trusted Jason so quickly. Yeah, from the get go. And loved him. I mean, she just was very bonded to him very quickly. So it it is interesting just to go on what you were saying about what you learn from animals, beings, creatures that may not have come from a good situation and just seeing how it's affected them and how they change over time. It's a good reflection that when we 
feel like we've been abandoned or heartbroken or discarded or we need to regain our trust and our faith in life and love that, well, it's going to take time. And to know that our hearts can heal and our psyches can heal and we can, even if it doesn't feel like it in the moment, return to a space of opening our hearts again and trusting and it's just, you know, beautiful lessons there. And they're wonderful companions. And it's interesting because I feel like as I get into this idea of of what home means to me, certainly contrasting it by living alone versus having animals in the house, you know, they fill it with a warmth and an energy and a vibrancy that you just don't experience when you you live completely by yourself. So, you know, amidst the moments of frustration that I have with them, <laughs> a small farm, it's the love and the lessons and the patience they teach me and, and the unconditional love they give back to me. So I don't regret the decision. Some people, you know, have their opinions on five animals and we'll leave that for maybe another conversation. It's well, a great filter for dating. It is. Well, you seem to feel almost like insecure a bit sometimes about having five animals. What does that mean? It's just because I've seen how people react to it. And there's really generally only one of two reactions, especially in terms of like a possible romantic connection, you know, dating, whatever. It's like, I haven't seen a lot of, actually at one person, I saw a new, one, a neutral reaction, but most people, it's either this, like, oh my God, you have five animals. When can I come meet them? You know, excitement and giddiness. Or it's like, you have five, five animals. Mmm, okay. You know, it's really not a lot of middle ground, but look, I am not everyone's flavor of ice cream. I'm not like anybody else I know. I am me. I'm still figuring out who I am. I love food and music and art and dancing and orange is my favorite color and I like having my earrings and my tattoos and my motorcycles and my cars and my comic book movies and making recipes and making love and dancing and tasting life and tacos. There's so many things that I love and I know that I'm not for everyone. I know this and I'm, I'm more okay with that now than I've ever been. Whereas I think for many years when I was younger, it's like, how do I get people to like me so they don't abandon me? Mm. But now in my early 40s, I'm moving into this interesting energy of not giving a fuck about a lot of things I used to in terms of being something I'm not or people pleasing or trying to win people over so they won't abandon me. Now it's like, I'm my own brand of weird. And I like my brand of weird. I like who I am. And if someone's not down with the animals or my lifestyle or my art or the things I love, like, cool. But I love that about me and I love my life and I love the person I'm becoming. And I trust that I will find people and continue to find people that are like, yo, we dig your weird. And I think maybe that's one of the secrets of life is finding the same people who resonate with your weirdness. You know, it's like instead of namaste, it's like nama weird, like the weirdness in me <laughs> acknowledges the weirdness in you, you know? And so now at this point in my life, yeah, I just, I do dig who I am. Even if I'm my flavor of ice cream is like double fudge habanero brownie chunk with marshmallows and mochi. Like, that's a great flavor. Somebody's going to dig that flavor. Well, that's great. <laughs> I think that's a wonderful way to end this, to wrap this up. And I hope that you, the listener, have learned a lot about Jason. I think that you shared a lot of things. There are things that you shared that I don't even know, oh, which fun. is amazing because I talk to Jason almost every day and have been for the past coming on seven years. So it also goes to show that you might think you know someone, but there's a lot within us that we may just have never brought up and things that haven't even occurred to us until conversations like this. So in addition to 
learning more about Jason, learning a little bit more about us as friends and the type of things, getting a taste for the conversations that we have here on this podcast that we hope to have with guests on here and all the different places that we're going to go that may or may not make you uncomfortable. I also hope that this episode got you thinking about the conversations you can have with your own friends, your family members, your loved ones. You know, one of the most important things that we can do as human beings is to connect and try to get to know each other, try to understand each other. And interviewing them or just having an in-depth conversation where you really sit back and let someone talk, which, you know, unless you're talking about animals like I did, I got very excited. I, I wanted to tell that story. But for the most part, I, I did my best to sit back and just listen to Jason. And it's wonderful. Again, there you might discover facets of somebody that you didn't even know were in there and gives you a greater understanding and love and respect for others. So I hope that you, the listener, do that. And you can even record it, too, actually. On that note, one of the best things that I did before the grandparent that I was the closest to, before he passed away, I I did a number of recordings. And when he passed away, I remember thinking, I wish that I had recorded even more conversations with him. It never felt like enough. So maybe this will inspire you to record a conversation with a loved one and ask them more about their lives and who they are and why and how that's defined them. And I'm next up. So in the upcoming episode, Jason's going to turn the table around and (laughs) it's my turn to be in the hot seat. So stay tuned for that. Check that out here on the Wellevator podcast. This might get uncomfortable. And again, be sure to check out the show notes. You can watch some of the videos that we reference, some of the old school videos by Jason Robel. We'll link to his music if his music's out there. We'll link to any of the people that we talked about, the restaurants, whatever. The rescue organizations, the yes, resources. Yes, exactly. We want to load you up with all of those details on the website. You can sign up for our newsletter there. We try to give you lots of goodies. We want to share with you as much as possible. So be sure to go to wellevator.com, W-E-L-L-E-V-A-T-R.com. Thanks again for listening, and we'll see you in the next episode. Thanks for listening and getting out of your comfort zone with us today. For show notes and more high-performance resources to help you thrive, go to wellevator.com. That's W-E-L-L-E-V-A-T-R.com.